back to Victor E. History Podcast from the History Department at Forte State University, home of Victor E. Tiger. Here at Victor E. History, Professor Holly Marquez and Dr. Manami Guha highlight student, faculty, and alumni research. Our student music major, Nathan Weiss, created and produced the music for this podcast. I am Dr. Manami Guha, and today we are joined by history education major, Keith Keane. Welcome, Keith. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're studying at Forte State. Well, my name is Keith. Uh, I live in Montrose, Colorado. I grew up in Clay Center, Kansas. Uh, I'm a history major at Fort Hayes and secondary in education. Uh, when it's all said and done, hopefully I'll be able to teach history somewhere. But, uh, you know, I still got a long ways to go. I'm working full time and taking classes part time right now. So it's it's the long road I'm taking for sure. Uh, what made you pick Fort Hayes for your bachelor's? So uh, I actually did my associates at Cloud County. So I wanted somewhere where all the credits would transfer. That was a big mm -hmm. part of it. And then mm -hmm. my uncle also went to Fort Hayes. And uh, we spent a lot of time in Hayes when we were kids. Oh, he wow. lived in Stockton, Kansas. And we'd go spend summers with him and go spend time in Hayes. And he'd take us around campus and stuff. So I kind of just had a soft spot for Fort Hayes anyway. So it helped. And then, what, and then once you heard about the online uh, bachelor's program, you were like, I have to get this done. For sure. When I was looking around at different schools, uh, they offer a lot of online courses at Fort Hayes and you can do your entire, uh, you know, uh, bachelor's degree online, which mm -hmm. is awesome. And not everywhere offers that. A lot of places you have to do some in-person classes. So the flexibility definitely helped. Wow, awesome. Um, so tell us a little bit about the course that you wrote this paper for. Who was the course instructor and what were the expectations for this paper? Uh, the course was historical methods mm -hmm. and my instructor was uh, Dr. Amber Nickel. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who's taken any of her classes, the expectations are somewhat high. She definitely uh, wants to get the best out of you, but she oh, always yeah. is. Uh, she's always willing to help and uh, improve your paper, which I think was awesome. It helped me become a better writer for sure. Uh, it's a very intimidating class for students who are getting ready to take it, who haven't done something of that scope yet, but it definitely gets better once you get the jitters out of the way. Mm -hmm. So tell our listeners a little bit about your topic and what made you want to work on this? So my topic was actually kind of uh, how Japan was able to come to America and make video games. I'm trying to think of the wording they were able to make video games commonplace and uh, accepted because Atari and Magnavox had both made uh, in-home gaming systems previously, but they weren't ever able to gain any ground and they were popular for a real quick flash. And then they just kind of uh, faded out and nobody really cared about them anymore, but somehow Nintendo has came and they became a mainstay to where they're a very recognizable name today. Mm -hmm. And video games today are played by, I mean, everyone, adults to kids, all the same. It's, yep. uh, it's a completely normal hobby to have. And I just thought it was kind of fascinating to see where that term came from and how they were able to uh, make that shift. Mm -hmm. And then the more I started kind of looking into the sources and everything, the more I started to learn that it was kind of a cultural aspect that really affected it mm -hmm. to where 
what they were trying to do in America with Atari and Magnavox, it just didn't quite translate the way that uh, Japan was able to translate things to home video games, which created a very unique atmosphere. They were able to make awesome music that came with it and just make a very memorable experience instead of just trying to cut and paste arcade games. Mm -hmm. So the more that I kind of uh, was falling down that rabbit hole, the more it made me want to uh, research this topic and talk about it a little more. Mm -hmm. Wow. Awesome. But I mean, I, I have to say this as I, as I was reading your paper, uh, it was fascinating to find out that Nintendo, as we know, as this, you know, video game conglomerate that it is today, that is not how Nintendo started out. I mean, it earlier apparently forayed into other businesses like instant rice and taxi service. So how did they then make the shift to video games as their winning formula. So yeah, Nintendo was actually around for almost 100 years before they released the uh, Nintendo Entertainment System as we know it. Mm -hmm. They started out as a trading card or a playing card company. And uh, they did that for a long, long time until the 60s or 70s. And then they were kind of having some uh, financial issues and decided to branch out. And that's where they tried the instant rice. They uh, had their own taxi company for a while. Mm -hmm. They even uh, had their own love hotel for a while, which is just as seedy as it sounds. Okay. And uh, I think a stroke of luck that they landed on video games, they started doing a laser shooting, like play pigeon shooting game. Mm -hmm. And it was somewhat of an arcade game. And that was their very first ever uh, quote unquote video game that they made. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that was kind of a big success. So they started doing home video games like the Atari that were just really crude versions of Pong and arcade games like that. But it wasn't until 1983 where uh, the Famicom, mm -hmm. which is the family computer, mm -hmm. and uh, that's what they rebranded as the Nintendo Entertainment System. That came out in 1983 and it just completely changed everything um so what was so unique about nintendo that it resonated with the american audience do you think so i think the first thing that we have to acknowledge is uh with the nintendo entertainment center like i was saying it started out as the famicom or the family computer and if you were to look at images of that it looks completely different than the nintendo as we know it it's mm -hmm. way more sleek and colorful and just looks a lot more like a toy mm -hmm. but coming over to the western audience they knew they were going to have to try to break that stigma a little bit so to get it into households they designed it to look like a vcr uh the okay. famicom was actually a top loading system where you put the game in the top mm -hmm. uh, and then with the nintendo they did it front loading to make it look like a vcr mm -hmm. they made it all gray and black and just mm -hmm. kind of a little nondescript that way american audiences would be okay like the parents would be okay having this in their household okay. it looked like an appliance so it was almost oh. a uh, a bragging rights type of thing you know it was a commodity to have instead of just being a toy for the kids okay so that was a big way to get into the doors it just didn't look so kiddish and i mean for american audiences to spend a couple hundred dollars on a video game system mm -hmm. if it just looks like a toy for their kids they're going to be a lot more hesitant than it looking like an appliance once it was in the house i think you know just the design of the games how colorful the games were the music that came behind the games and nintendo was doing a lot of original games whereas like atari and magnavox were just doing ports of arcade games so it was oh. something you would play at the arcade but you could just do it at home 
with Nintendo, it was completely unique to that system. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a huge thing that uh, played a part in getting the American audience to accept it. And uh, I think the music, honestly, was a really huge part of it. Anyone who grew up playing Mario can just remember that theme song. Oh, it's yes. Just, yeah, it's just clear as day. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it was just these little tweaks that they did where they put a lot more emphasis on the storytelling and the cinematic aspects of it mm -hmm. than the old arcade games mm -hmm. that was able to make it, uh, you know, beloved by so many people. So another thing uh, very evident from your paper is uh, the, the, the character of Shigeru Miyamoto. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about him? Yeah, Shigeru Miyamoto is a very uh, fascinating individual. <laughs> so he actually, uh, he went to the Kanazawa Municipal College of Industrial Arts and he was going for an art degree and he wanted to be a manga artist, which manga are just Japanese comics. Mm -hmm. He grew up on them. He loved them. That's what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. He took his job with Nintendo, not as a game designer at all. He actually designed a arcade game cabinets before video or, you know, the home video game system ever came around. But yeah. How he actually was able to get into, uh, designing video games as they had this failed arcade game called Radar Scope mm -hmm. that uh, it just wasn't selling. No one really cared about it. So they okay. decided to take the cabinet, redesign mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. and then put a different game into it to try to save money because they weren't doing very well with the video game industry right now. Uh -huh. So they needed someone new to uh, design a new game for it. Okay. And as he states it, he did it because no one else wanted to okay. but either either way you know whatever the story is he got elected to design this game even though he'd never designed any games before mm -hmm. and then he came up with donkey kong which you know <laughs> is still a very recognizable mm -hmm. character to this day mm -hmm. so fun fact too it was actually supposed to be a popeye video game but they couldn't get the rights to popeye okay. so he he redesigned the characters to be a, you know, a uh, gorilla. And uh -huh. then Mario at the time was just named Jumpman. And he was a carpenter, not a plumber yet. Okay. Because he was building the building that uh, he was trying to climb and, you know, save the princess. Right. But the big thing is he wanted to take his love of manga and anime and put that those cinematic elements into a video game and so donkey kong what made it unique was that it started with a little cutscene or a little cinematic you know video at the very start that set up the story and it was only like three or four seconds it's really mm -hmm. simple but mm -hmm. nothing like that had been done before so he was really trying to make it more of a movie type experience and mm -hmm. make it have a storyline to go with it right and i think that you know that's such a huge part of what changed video games is being able to make it more of a version of storytelling than just pressing buttons and trying to get timing down, you know? There was a villain, there was a hero, there was a damsel in distress. That and, had needed rescuing. Know, yeah, yeah, exactly. So he had, as crude as it may have been and as simple as it may have been, he had a plot and he had something he wanted to achieve. Mm -hmm. But you can tell by looking at Donkey Kong that, you know, his ideas were a bit bigger than the uh, mechanics were at the time. Mm -hmm. So the computers weren't able to quite handle what he really wanted to accomplish. And so was Mario also a creation of Miyamoto he was yeah uh and yeah it's funny because he was just named Jumpman originally because he wasn't even one of the main characters you know it was only Donkey Kong that had a name and mm -hmm. uh 
yeah, he was the only real character that mattered because mm-hmm. he was the titular character of the game. But uh, when they decided to do the Famicom and the Nintendo Entertainment System, mm-hmm. they wanted their own unique game. Mm-hmm. And Donkey Kong was such a huge success that they brought Miyamoto back in to design the new game. And, uh, you know, he just dipped back into the well of Donkey Kong because, you know, if it works, then why stray away from it? So right. uh, he created him with a little more backstory, made him a plumber. Funny enough, the only reason he ever became a plumber is because he wanted to have those little uh, tunnels in the game. Yeah, he wanted the little pipes in the game for oh, him to go down. So right. he made him a plumber just as a means to an end because he wanted them to be able to go down pipes. He wanted turtles to come out of the pipes. Right. And he needed a reason to justify pipes being everywhere. So he changed them from a carpenter to a plumber. And uh, then became one of the biggest characters, not even video game characters, but Mario is probably one of the most recognizable characters in the world. But the creation of Mario, what you're saying is that with the success of Donkey Kong, he wanted to give Mario a whole new lease of life on his own? Yeah. Correct. Uh, He wanted to take this character and kind of flesh him out a little more. And now that he had uh, eight bits to work with, he could kind of make him a little more designed, a little more colorful. Another fun fact about uh, Mario is the whole reason he has a mustache is Mm -hmm. because when he was Jumpman in Donkey Kong, Mm -hmm. they couldn't really differentiate the bottom and top lip. So they just gave him a mustache to uh, (laughs) add a little flavor to him. The same with the red hat. They couldn't really put a lot of uh, pixels into his hair so those were just a means to an end but then they just stuck with the character yeah he was actually named after one of the warehouse workers for nintendo of america too and there's no real reason that i can find it's not mm-hmm. like miyamoto had close ties with this person but uh he was a big fan of italian comics growing up and he cited that as part of the reason why he wanted an italian character right he mario just... and luigi too right yeah, yeah, exactly. Two yeah. two Italian characters, both with blue collar jobs, which he, you know, Miyamoto did state was very important. He wanted it to be like an everyman character. He wanted everyone to be able to relate to this and not for it to be some crazy fantastical character, even though it is in the mm-hmm. sense. But, but you know, uh, and I think that helped with Western audiences as well. You know, Plumber is just a standard blue collar job that a lot of those blue collar dads that wouldn't normally be accepting of video games, mm-hmm. you know, had an end with this character. So what? how crucial was music to the success of these games? I think it was absolutely fundamental to the success of these games. Mm-hmm. So uh, the person who orchestrated the music is a man named Koji Kondo. And uh, he was the first full-time composer ever hired to Nintendo or to any video game. You know, there had obviously been compositions for other video games, but he was the first full-time composer ever hired on. And they hired him for Mario to make a soundtrack from front to back. And at that point in time, it mostly been one or two songs that just kind of streamed together throughout the whole game. Mm -hmm. But he wanted wanted a title song. He wanted songs for each type of level. And Mm -hmm. he really pushed the hardware to the max to try to cram everything in there and create six original pieces for this one game. And 
I don't think there's any, you know, uh, understating how important that was because it made it so memorable. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, things would have just kind of bled together and became a little more forgettable as they went on. But Mm -hmm. the underwater theme was very memorable for kids. The, Mm -hmm. you know, underground theme and the caves and stuff, it all had a unique vibe to it. Mm -hmm. And it had a lot more personality. And Mm -hmm. I think that resonated with people a lot more because uh, you were excited to get to a new level and hear what the new soundtrack sounded like, you know? Mm -hmm. And up until that point in time there had never been anything like that so would you say this would probably be the first time that a video game company was being very intentional about the kind of music they were using as the background score without a doubt yeah uh they let Miyamoto take the reins on this and him wanting to make it so cinematic Mm -hmm. it was very important to him to have a whole musical composition to go with it in order to kind of have that structure to it and that storytelling element to it. Mm -hmm. So I think that it was really this desire to push the limits and push the boundaries and not just stick to what had worked in the past. Mm -hmm. And they really tried to utilize every piece of hardware to create the best story they could. And that's ultimately where the focus was, is they just wanted the story to be as memorable as possible. And they wanted to make it as movie-like as possible that way people would stay engaged throughout the whole game because i mean you look at games like pac-man and stuff like that in the past and while they're fun and addictive games you're really just kind of going around the same labyrinth over and over again whereas mario you have these platform levels they change scenery you have vibrant colors this amazing composition in the background and you don't think about it too much at the time Mm -hmm. but those songs stick in your head. They're very mm-hmm. memorable. And there's also these special little elements where uh, they work together. And like in the underwater levels, the characters move to the beat. And the little flashing coin in the top, right. you know, where your coins are, it uh-huh. works as a metronome. It keeps the count the entire time. So the rhythm of the music dictates the wow. game in that aspect. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's something that a lot of people don't notice, but it's just this kind of rhythmic element to the game that made it even more addictive for kids Mm -hmm. i don't know if this is happening to you right now but as we are talking i'm just replaying the mario music it's just absolutely i can't get it out of my head right now right it's just it's just constantly playing in the background (laughs) so can you tell us more about the genesis of american comic characters and then how did how were they stacking up against the japanese ones so i think that this is one of the most important elements for my paper personally, I know I talk about Mario and uh, Nintendo a lot, but Mm -hmm. at its core, Mm -hmm. what I was trying to figure out is why Japanese companies were able to be successful in this market where American companies weren't. And you even look at the the next newcomer to the video game market was Sega, which was also a Japanese company. Mm -hmm. So it was all the American video games were dominated by Japanese companies. I really wanted to figure out why. Mm -hmm. And so the more I started kind of looking into the past leading up to video games, you Mm -hmm. know, and Miyamoto's love of manga and Japanese, you know, style animation and all that. Mm -hmm. I started looking at that. I grew up with a lot of, you know, anime and stuff like that. But I also grew up with a lot of, you know, American comics like Mm -hmm. Batman and Superman. Mm -hmm. And so you start to notice as you're looking at these two things side by side that, all the American comics are very realistic. 
Okay. They're very proportionate. They, uh, they kind of have that superhero build that we recognize now. They're all, you know, huge and buff and they're fighting crime or, mm -hmm. you know, as far back as fighting Nazis and stuff like that in the right. 40s. And, uh, right. you know, there was this whole element to American comics that was like, for the kids to be idolizing these characters and for them to be the statue of, uh, you know, morality and strength. Right. Whereas with Japanese characters, they're just way more cartoony and goofy. Mm -hmm. And they have a much more animated and balloony type look to them. They don't look realistic whatsoever. No. And I noticed the more I was looking into it, that that really helped tremendously mm -hmm. in translating to video games. Because okay. they were able to take these cartoony, you know, characters and make, you know, an adorable little Mario or mm -hmm. Sonic the Hedgehog or Kirby mm -hmm. and all these characters that just have a very, so the Japanese word for it is kawaii. It means cute. And it's a huge part of, you know, Japanese culture for kids, especially. Mm -hmm. And they were able to translate those cute characters into these eight bits and mm -hmm. make it work. Mm -hmm. Whereas with only eight bits to work with, you couldn't really create these realistic human-like characters. Okay. And I think that it really limited what like American comic artists were able to do in that respect. You know, they weren't able to create what they're used to with that type of hardware. Whereas Japanese comic characters had a lot more leniency because it was just make it cute and colorful and memorable. And that was really all that mattered. It didn't have to be six pack abs and muscles everywhere and, you know, proportionate body types. Right. Um, so for our listeners who probably don't know about this, can you tell us what the eight bit is that you're talking about? Sure. So, uh, you know, the eight bit graphics card that was used in the Nintendo at the time was revolutionary they yeah. had nothing like it it dictates the amount of pixels you were able to put into the screen and mm -hmm. arcade games before that you didn't have nearly as many pixels to work with so you weren't able to create a very vibrant picture you didn't have a whole lot of colors to choose from you didn't have a lot of pixels to work with mm -hmm. but with the nintendo you had that first time where you were able to really create more of a i don't even want to say realistic but more of a recognizable character and brighter backgrounds and brighter colors. Mm -hmm. Then you went to the Super Nintendo, that was 16 bits. Then, you know, the Nintendo 64 was 64 bits. Right. And now we've just transcended all of that. And we have hyper-realistic video games. But at the time, that 8-bit graphics card was revolutionary. And it was able to really push a lot of boundaries that were never able to be pushed before. Mm -hmm. So in this 8-bit, what you're saying is, say, an American-born hero like Batman could not have translated into 8-bit as well as a Mario would have? Correct. They wouldn't have been able to make him look realistic. Okay. And so they would have had a very smushed down cartoony version of Batman, mm -hmm. which wasn't going to represent what Batman represents. You know, mm -hmm. it's not going to have that crime fighter extraordinaire type look to it. Right. So. You know, it was, I think it was hard for a lot of comic artists in the United States to try to crush these characters down, make them cute, mm -hmm. make them, you know, palatable, because mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't going to represent what these American kids grew up with as well. 
Right. You know, they were used to Batman and Superman being what they were. So if they got this butchered version of them, they weren't going to, you know, respond to it greatly. Mm -hmm. Whereas Mario, that meant nothing to him. It was a completely new character. And, uh, you know, that style translated great. The music went with it great. And then it was able to create this unique experience without having preset expectations. What were some of the really interesting primary and secondary sources that you worked with? And what was your experience working with these sources? So there were a lot of really interesting sources that I worked with. A lot of interviews, uh, you know, with previous video game makers, with Miyamoto and stuff like that. For me personally, the most interesting aspect was looking at the Japanese magazines and articles and newspapers. Mm. And... I can't really speak Japanese. I've studied it for a few years, so I could kind of read enough to get by, but it was just very fascinating to read it in the native language and kind of just see how different the vibe was when it first came out over there Mm -hmm. compared to here. Mm -hmm. Like I was able to look at the family computer magazine compared to Nintendo Power that came out here and the vibe is completely different. Like the video game designers in Japan were rock stars. That's all they talked about. And it was this huge Mm. spectacle. Whereas here in Nintendo Power, you know, is going over a lot more of the video games themselves, Mm -hmm. nobody behind the scenes. And it didn't, they didn't start releasing Nintendo Power until a few years after Nintendo had already gotten big in the United States. Mm -hmm. So it came much later in the game. So it was, just interesting to see that, you know, uh, duality of cultures and see how much different these video games were treated in America versus in Japan. And you can kind of see how they found so much initial success in Japan because it was huge. Everyone loved it. But uh, it was huge and very popular in Japan before they even redesigned the system and came over here. And uh, it was just, it was very fascinating reading some of the articles from the time it came out in Japan, Mm -hmm. reading some news articles from the time that it came out in uh, America and how people thought that it was going to be a failure. And, you know, Mm -hmm. like, because they'd already seen two video game systems fail by that point in time. So they're just like, "Eh, this is, you know, financial suicide for Nintendo, but (laughs) it ended up being one of the best business decisions they ever had. But the primary sources was really the funnest part of it because just looking back in hindsight at like Mm -hmm. how people thought it would go compared Mm -hmm. to how it did go is is very fascinating you know seeing how much it rejuvenated nintendo as a video game company and what it led to now is definitely very interesting to see i mean it was as much fun reading your paper as it was talking to you about the paper that you wrote it was really interesting well Um, i i appreciate that thank you and you were under very effective guidance with dr amber nickel and so and that you can see in the finished product in the paper too yeah, I I uh, agree. I think uh, just looking through the rough drafts to the final product, she really helped me pull it all together. Uh, I also have to kind of give her a lot of the credit for the idea itself because I was struggling a lot to come up with my topic for historical methods. And uh, we had a little Zoom meeting and she was like, write what you know. Like, what do you love? What did you grow up loving? And I was like, oh, Japanese video games. And she was like, try to just look at sources and see where that leads you. And then it kind of led me down this path of trying to put these dots together for why it worked. And Mm -hmm. uh, I definitely owe her a lot for uh, the topic itself. 
Right. With, with, the, with an effective instructor, all they need to do is just give you the nudge in the right direction. Absolutely. It makes mm -hmm. all the difference. Uh, mm -hmm. I think all of us that have attended classes have had, you know, really good instructors and then some instructors that maybe aren't so present. And it makes such a big difference to have them engaged with you and actively helping you through the process, especially with a big paper like in historical methods. Right. And it is daunting. I mean, historical methods paper is a daunting paper to oh, write. Oh, for sure. It's a marathon. <laughs> it is. 16 weeks, you know, it's it's a big thing. What are, you, what are the other sort of courses that you're planning to take at Fort Hayes in the future? So right now I'm taking a classical worlds class that's about ancient Greece and ancient Rome, and that's really where my uh, love of history is. So oh, that wow. class so far has been incredible it's been so interesting to read the sources i mean i'm just kind of going where the wind takes me to be completely honest i'm that's just trying to take history classes that i find fascinating that's my biggest uh my biggest goal right now is just to be interested in the classes i have that's gotten past a lot of the prerequisites so it's just <laughs> it's time for the fun classes it's time right. for the interesting history Right. I have paid my dues and now I get Absolutely. to classes that I'm Yeah, now, now I get to spend tons of time reading about interesting topics and not having to do, uh, you know, the, English and math classes and all that. So I'm work, excited yes. about it. Yeah. Well, well, Keith, it was really nice talking to you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Um, so we will post a selected bibliography of sources for those who want to learn more about this fascinating topic about Japan's legacy in video game history at our website, victorehistory.com. That's victorehistory.com. Subscribe by email to get notifications on episodes. You can find our Victor E. History podcast on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Spotify, or at victorehistory.com. If you are interested in pursuing a history degree, or a history education degree at FHSU online or on campus, visit www.fhsu.edu slash history to learn more.